0: Tonight on The Readout.
1: How is it that anyone could suggest that in the midst of these atrocities, that there was any benefit to being subjected to this level of dehumanization? In the midst of these atrocities, that there was some benefit.
0: Vice President Kamala Harris in Florida today with a blistering rebuke of Republicans for new standards requiring students to be taught about the positive aspects of slavery. Also tonight, Donald Trump learns when his classified documents trial will begin, and it could make for a very interesting start to the general election campaign. Plus, the DeSantis reboot In Hollywood, they reboot shows and movies if they were really popular the first time. The problem for DeSantis is he's not popular. And the reboot looks a lot like the original failed sitcom. But we begin tonight with major developments in the many criminal cases against Donald Trump. Earlier today, Florida Judge Aileen Cannon ruled that the trial in the classified documents case will begin on May 20th, 2024, in between the December start date that the Justice Department asked for and a post-election date, which Trump's lawyers wanted. But even though Cannon didn't immediately cave to Trump's request, her time frame could still prove complicated, given the political calendar. On May 20th, all but six states will have had their primary elections, meaning we will probably already know who the Republican nominee for president is. And if that nominee is Trump, which is very likely, then having a May trial will no doubt lead to cries of election interference and calls for further delays. But even as the twice impeached, twice indicted former president is clearly counting on that friendly judge and the friendly Florida district to help him avoid conviction, he's not exactly out of the woods, especially as another indictment from Jack Smith's office could come at any moment this one relating to his efforts to overturn the 2020 election. And today, we're learning new details about what exactly the special counsel wanted to know from William Russell, Trump's personal aide who testified before the grand jury yesterday. NBC News has learned that prosecutors questioned Russell about Trump's state of mind during and after the 2020 election period, which Russell probably knows a thing or two about. A source tells NBC that he would often informally engage in conversations with Trump and other key staff, including Mark Meadows in the West Wing and in the Oval Office. Not to mention he was with Trump for much of the day on January 6th. You can see him here with the former president at the Ellipse. And while Russell has previously testified before the grand jury, notably, he never testified before the House Select January 6th committee, meaning he could potentially have key information about Trump's thinking on and leading up to that day that we have not yet heard. Meanwhile, there's breaking news tonight. The Washington Post is reporting that the special counsel also reached out to Georgia Governor Brian Kemp for information about Trump's efforts to overturn the election results in that state. The governor's office confirmed the special counsel's contact, but would not comment any further. Joining me now is Congressman Eric Swalwell of California and Glenn Kirshner, former federal prosecutor, MSNBC legal analyst and host of the Justice Matters podcast. I will ask the congressman, uh, with my apologies, to defer to the lawyer in just this case. I know you're a lawyer, too. Uh, But I do want to ask Glenn a question before I get to you, Congressman, if you don't mind, Um, because I want to go back to the Aileen Cannon Thank you, sir. I want to go back to the Aileen Cannon of it. Uh, This date, Glenn, that she has said in May, seems to me like an alley-oop in favor of Trump. And this is why. In May, it will probably be known whether he's the nominee. And if he's the nominee, you can bet he's going to go back to Aileen Cannon and say, this prosecution can't continue. I'm the nominee. This is the current administration attempting to weaponize the government against their opponent. Is that how you see it? This looks like a first step to doing what Trump asked. What do you see? How do you see it?
2: Of course, Donald Trump and his team of lawyers will make that ask of Judge Cannon. You're absolutely right, Joy. But if Judge Cannon can sit fair, impartially and independently, and she is an honest broker of the law, here's what she should say. I set this trial date Ten months in advance to give you all enough time to do what you needed to do to prepare to defend Donald Trump at trial. Guess what? I already knew there was going to be a presidential election in November 2024 when I set a May 2024 trial date. Folks were going to trial. Here's what I'll say, Joy. When federal judges set trial dates, particularly so far in advance, I mean nearly a year for goodness sake, they expect that to be a firm trial date. The flip side of that coin is we all know, the congressman knows from being a, for- a prosecutor, I know, um, trial dates get pushed. This one shouldn't get pushed for a hundred reasons. Let's hope Judge Cadden is an honest broker of the law, and she forces folks to go to trial in May.
0: Can we just put up the the, the, uh, the three dates that were just up on the screen just a moment ago? I don't want to put them back up for the congressman, because you know the folks on the other side uh, who sit on something called the Weaponization Committee and on all these other committees, where they're really just, as you've said, they are the legal firm for Donald Trump you're going to have in May, on May 20th, this classified documents trial hopefully begin without delay. But then you go to July and we're at the Republican National Convention. Then you have a presidential election in November. It, it seems to me that it, there is zero chance that Republicans will not attempt to use that calendar, Congressman, to try to claim that this whole prosecution should be to um, go away. Um, and, and I don't see how they don't do it. And how do you think that winds up playing out?
3: Well, as we've seen in the first seven months of Speaker McCarthy's uh, leadership, uh, his entire agenda is about protecting Donald Trump. And that'll continue into next year. It's not about lowering the cost of health care or reducing gun violence in our community or making college more affordable. It's entirely about protecting Donald Trump. And and that'll be put into high gear next year. But I want to make a point. Uh, Jack Smith can't make this prosecutor. and, And Glenn knows Uh, why, uh, but we can make this point, which is if Donald Trump was so innocent and this prosecution was so rigged, wouldn't an innocent person subjected to a rigged prosecution crawl through glass and walk over fire to exercise their speedy trial right? Someone who is as innocent as Donald Trump claims he is, would not want to delay justice. The whole point of a speedy trial, right, uh, which he could use and go to trial uh, pretty quickly, is to protect people who are wrongfully accused. And so he's sure acting like a guilty person.
0: You know, it's a really good point, Glenn. Except that he then would have to claim that he's equally innocent in like half a dozen cases. He's got the case in New York. Let's just do that calendar. Here's another calendar for you. October 2nd, 2023, you've got the AG civil fraud trial. January 15, 2024, the E. Jean Carroll civil trial, which uh, in which he defamed her again, allegedly. January 29, 2024, federal class action lawsuit uh, trial. And this is the, D- the New York case, another New York case. The New York hush money trial um, is going to take place March 25th and then May 20th, you have this trial. They all can't be speedy trials. They all can't take place at the same time. How does this wind up getting sequenced, do you think?
2: Yeah, his prosecution dance card couldn't be fuller. And I think there will have to be some at least communication, maybe not coordination or cooperation among the various jurisdictions, but at least some communication. They're going to need to prioritize these trials. Now, Joe, let me tell you, I was a federal prosecutor for 30 years, and the, the prevailing wisdom is the feds will ordinarily try to go to trial first. Now, that is no disrespect intended to state prosecutors, district attorneys, but I think everybody recognizes that... The federal government has more resources. The federal government has an unrivaled conviction rate. I can argue both sides of whether that's a good thing or a bad thing, but they do because they only take the strongest cases to trial. I have a feeling the district attorneys might be happy to to lay back and let the feds go first. I've always maintained that even though Donald Trump committed lots of state crimes and lots of federal crimes, he's a federal problem and a federal problem can only be solved with a federal prosecution, though I am thrilled that Fonnie Willis is in the game and that D.A. Bragg is in the game. They're, they're vindicating important rights of the citizens in their jurisdictions. But there's going to have to be some communication to prioritize Donald Trump's criminal trials.
0: Hey, can, can, does that apply also? I mean, now that we know that the special counsel, Glenn, is speaking to Brian Kemp or has spoken with Brian Kemp, What does that indicate? Because we still don't know a date for a prosecution, a prosecutorial decision from Fonnie Willis.
2: Yeah, it just shows that Jack Smith is casting the widest possible investigative net. He's got to look at what trump and lindsey graham and mark meadows and others uh did down in georgia just as he has to look to the other battleground states where there were fake electors where there were where there was donald trump calling governors and pressuring them so this is jack smith continue continuing to saw the investigative wood in front of him
0: let me me play some uh, a piece of sound for you this is steve bannon and roger stone talking about what donald trump was going to do before the election even happened
2: and what Trump's going to do is just declare victory, right? He's going to declare a victory. But that doesn't mean he's the winner. He's just going to say he's the winner. I suspect
4: it'll be, I really do suspect it'll still be up in the air. But when that happens, the key thing to do is to claim victory. Possession is nine-tenths of the law. No, we won. F*** you. Sorry, over. We won. Yeah. You're wrong. F*** you.
0: Giving away the game, Congressman, we now know, uh, based on Rolling Stones reporting, that this Trump war room, we've heard a lot about it, the Willard Hotel, uh, was a subject of particular interest for the January 6th committee's investigation for its role in the, as the hub of Trump, the Trump campaign's attempts to block the counting of electoral votes on January 6th. Top Trump advisors used the so-called, used the so-called command center while pressuring Vice President Pence to reject the counting of legitimate electors, um, and encourage state legislatures to instead send the fake electors in. Um, this is, uh, Rolling Stones reported not, con- independently confirmed by NBC. However, we do know who was in that room, Congressman Steve Bannon, Mike Flynn, Roger Stone, Bernard Carrick, Boris Epstein, Rudy Giuliani, and John Eastman. And we know that some of them were using Oath Keepers, et cetera, as security. What do you make of of this war room piece of the investigation?
3: Uh, This ain't my parents' Republican Party. I was raised by two Republicans uh, who told me about the values of Ronald Reagan I, I didn't agree with them uh, obviously uh, but they were rooted in in principles and when you listen uh, you know to Bannon and and Stone uh, it's a party of violence it's a party of chaos it's a party of grievances uh, and it's a party that's trying to win through subtraction by taking away your rights by taking away your freedom and taking away your votes and that is what they're going to they're going to run the same playbook in 2024 uh, but joy uh, your voy- your viewers should uh, rest assured that uh, the people who support that, that number is, is shrinking. Uh, and that since Donald Trump was elected in 2016, we won in 1820, beat expectations in 22, win the, won the Wisconsin Supreme Court just recently, won in Jacksonville, Florida. We're on a winning streak because people want competence and community over chaos. And so I'm, I'm confident we're in the right direction uh, and they're going to be in the dustbins of history.
0: Last word to you, Glenn. Do you think anybody that was in that war room ought to be worried about Jack Smith?
2: Oh, yeah. I would be surprised if we didn't see their names, you know, on an indictment, perhaps as part of a conspiracy uh, to defraud or commit offenses against the United States by, you know, trying to rob the American voters of their free and fair election. So I think they better look out.
0: Uh, Congressman Eric Swalwell, who respectfully has uh, revealed himself to have been a reverse Alex P. Keaton, uh, Republican parents, liberal Democratic son. Uh, So it's it's the reverse of that show. Uh, And Glenn Kirshner, thank you, friends. I appreciate both of you being on the show, as always. Up next on The Readout, when students become casualties of the war on woke teachers, give Florida's new curriculum teaching kids about the benefits of being a slave a big fat F. Which it deserves. The readout continues after this. The war on woke is really a war against young people, an extreme attack on how they think, exist, speak, and especially how they understand the world they live in. Those attacks reached new heights this week when the Florida Department of Education released shocking new guidelines on how U.S. history, particularly around racial violence, is taught. Florida middle school students will now be taught that slavery gave black people a personal benefit because they developed beneficial job skills. High school students will now be taught that black people were also perpetrators of violence during white supremacist massacres, like the one in Rosewood, Florida in 1923, when a white mob destroyed the rural black town and murdered many of its residents. The state's education department, if you can even call it that, is doing this in a public school system where 64% of its students are people of color. Late today, Vice President Kamala Harris traveled to Jacksonville, Florida, to talk about what slavery was really about.
1: It involved torture. It involved taking a baby from their mother. It involved some of the worst Examples of, of, of depriving people of humanity in our world. They dare to push propaganda to our children. This is the United States of America. We're not supposed to do that. They insult us in an attempt to gaslight us. And we will not have it.
0: Now, I should know. we invited the Florida Education Department to have a representative come on this show to discuss this issue tonight but we did not get a response. To the Florida Board of Education, as well as Education Commissioner Manny Diaz, please know, our invitation still stands. Joining me now is Florida State Senator Chevron Jones, uh, and State Senator, uh, I know that you serve on the Education Committee, so I'm, you've been watching this happen um, you know, up close, the one of the many ironies of what's happening here is that the law that requires that African-American history be taught in the state of Florida was passed based on paying reparations, or at least on recognizing the Rosewood massacre itself. That is what sparked the law that says they have to teach African-American history. What do you make of the fact that they've said, yeah, you have to teach it, but it has to be as the vice president called it propaganda.
5: Well, first, Joy, thank you for having me. Uh, But let's also point out that we're talking about the same let the same department that back in January rejected the curriculum for African, AP African American Studies for being too old. Uh, this is the same administration that said that Black history uh, brought about no educational value. The Republicans continue to speak out of both sides of their mouth, not just on this issue, but on various issues. So it's not surprising to me that we land right here uh, once again, that even in the standards writing that the Department of Education presented, and they voted in Unanimously on that this has come about, and this is the direction that uh, the Board of Education has gone in. And I want to make it clear to everyone, I think you made it clear, and I think so many others have made it clear, that there was no benefit to slaves, uh, Hmm. slavery, and and those individuals being enslaved. There was no benefit at all to it. And I also want to point out the fact that all of this is disingenuous, It's totally disengaging from the process and what we as a legislative body should be doing in this moment, considering the fact of the many issues that we as a state should be dealing with to make sure that our children are learning accurate history.
0: Yeah, what was the benefit of forced breeding, of raping enslaved women and then owning their children as a breeding strategy and also just as a form of venality? What was the benefit of taking black enslaved children and putting them by the water so that gators could come so that they could hunt gators and using them as literal gator bait and then putting that on postcards? That is the savagery that took place. And yet uh, your state would now like to teach that acts of violence against African-Americans Uh, has to be taught uh, alongside claiming that it is African-Americans who were causing the violence. And that's not limited to the 1908 Atlanta race riot, 1919 Washington, D.C. race riot, 1920 Okosi massacre, 1921 Tulsa massacre, 1923 Roosevelt, Rosewood massacre. They just kept happening over and over and over again. Um, And I wanted you to comment on this, please, um, uh, Senator Jones, um, Senator Florida is a place where already 35% of these students are white in public school, but 20.9% are black, 30 point, 36.4% are Latino, 2.8% are Asian, uh, are Asian American, and 4.1% or two, are, two or more races. So when the vice president says it's propaganda, they're trying to propagandize non-white children to make them believe that slavery was a good thing. Uh, and I wonder for what reason. Can you speculate on why they want black children to believe that slavery was good?
5: Yeah, I can't speculate on why they're doing this, but I also can tell you that you see what's happening in Florida and across the country of this narrative that's that's being pushed. Yeah, it's, it's, it's really because this is not a policy issue. This is a power struggle that we're seeing right now. Uh, this isn't just about the rewriting of history. Florida is trying to wipe away anything that contradicts the carefully crafted narrative that DeSantis is creating, and that includes Black history. So here's here's my thing. So if DeSantis doesn't want teachers to teach Black history in the classroom, then I'll put my teacher hat on for two seconds, and I'll do it right here. I mean, it wasn't an accident that Vice President Harris chose Lavilla in Jacksonville to do her visit. Lavilla is a historically Black neighborhood that became a safe haven for recently freed slaves. After the Civil War, due to the relative safety it offered with Union troops located nearby. So Florida has a great deal of history. I think we should also point out that Florida was one of the last states, one of the last states, to move forward when it comes to desegregation, one of the last states. And so what we're, what we're seeing in Florida, this is a national issue that we're dealing with, Joy. And this is a national problem that we're dealing with. We have the potential right now to raise a generation of children who don't know who they are, who don't know who they, where they come from, and who do not know their history. We have to stand firm on this. And I'm not just talking about black people have to stand firm. Our allies have to stand firm because history is history. Whether you're a Jewish American, whether you're a Chinese American, everyone's history is important. And whether you feel whether you feel comfortable or uncomfortable, it doesn't matter. You cannot a bow on bad American, what happened in American history and say that it was yep. good. It wasn't. Lynching wasn't good. Redlining wasn't good. All the things that have happened in America need to be taught and children need to know the truth.
0: Absolutely. And you have to wonder why the people who are passing these laws don't assume that their children, if they are white, will not identify with the people who were heroic in history and with the abolitionists. They just assume that their children are going to identify with the enslavers. And so they're trying to make the enslavers look good. And if you want to know why they're doing it, they're doing it because they want to raise a generation of people who will be conservative enough to give them their damn tax cuts, to give them the money they want and the deregulation they want. And they're terrified of young people because young people already are woke too late. Florida State Senator Chevron Jones. Thank you very much. Thank you very much, my friend. Still ahead. Alabama Republicans ignore a Supreme Court ruling to redraw their congressional map, disenfranchising more black voters. Did you know it was okay to ignore Supreme Court rulings? I didn't know that. It just makes life so much easier, doesn't it? Hey, America, did you know that you can ignore the Supreme Court? I didn't either until today when the Alabama legislature, which was ordered by the Supreme Court to draw a second and majority black congressional district, didn't do that. If only we had known that you can just ignore Sam Alito, Clarence and Friends a year ago when they overturned Roe v. Wade. Well, here's the deal. Late today, the Republican controlled Alabama legislature passed a map with just one majority black seat in direct defiance of the nation's highest court. Instead, they opted to choose between a district that is 42 percent black and another option with a district that is 38 percent black. The joint legislature chose the second option. Surprise, surprise. A Senate approved map with the district that is less than four tenths African-American. Now, I'm not a math girl. But I do know enough to know that 38% is well short of a majority. Earlier this week, Alabama's Senate president, Pro Tem, said, quote, I know that the process has moved through the three-judge panel and then to the Supreme Court, and they've given an order that we need to redo the map. So here we are. It doesn't mean we're excited about it, but we are going to do our job. What he didn't say is that he isn't doing what they were ordered to do. And here's why. A second black majority congressional district in Alabama would jeopardize the Republican majority in the United States House of Representatives, which explains why Speaker Kevin McCarthy called Alabama Republican legislature legislators and told them that he is concerned about maintaining his House majority. Joining me now is Evan Milligan, executive director of Alabama Forward and the plaintiff and a plaintiff in Merrill versus Milligan, which challenged the Alabama maps as a violation of the Voting Rights Act. And attorney Mark Elias, founder of Democracy Docket and co-host of the Defending Democracy podcast. And we should point out that Mark is not representing Evan and the organization. But and I do want to start with you, Evan. Good to see you again. Um, I want to get your reaction to what former Attorney General Eric Holder has called electoral apartheid in your state.
6: Thank you, Joy. It's good to see you again. Uh, It was definitely disappointing to to experience the state's. Uh, decision to obey two disobey I'm sorry two court orders but it's not surprising when we look over the history of our state we see a a pretty complex intense relationship between you know often leaders in our state and then the federal courts and the federal government um, and I think it's important for those Alabamians who live here and who, who might even be watching now to understand that. There are there are actors in our in our past who, when faced with this decision of what to do with regards to federal court orders that they might not fully disagree with, they you know there there has been a, a another trend not only to to move against the the rights of Black Alabamians, but there's been one that has embraced um, you know our relationship with the federal court. I want to mention we, we think of you know this incident made me think of uh, Governor George Wallace standing in the the doorway of the University of Alabama to block Miss Vivian Malone and Mr. James Hood's admission. But there was General Henry Graham, who was the general of the Alabama National Guard, who complied with President uh, President Kennedy's order to federalize the troops and order Governor Wallace to step aside. And that's also a part of our history here. It was not an easy decision for General Graham to make. There There were things that he stood to lose. He could have refused that. And if he had done so, it would have led to even more um, uh, civil unrest and and probably a greater scale of violence. But he complied then. He complied with supervising the troops that provided protection for the Freedom Riders and for those who participated in the Selma to Montgomery March in 1964. That is the tradition that I had hoped our legislators would lean into. So it's it's disappointing that they didn't. But we have that tradition as advocates and as Alabamians that we will continue to lean into to push our state in the right direction.
0: And uh, I will note that Vivian Malone uh, uh, was the sister-in-law of Eric Holder. Um, And so he uh, has a personal connection to it, just so that people don't think this was ancient history. Uh, Will your organization file a lawsuit about these new maps?
6: Well, our organization is not necessarily a plaintiff in the case, but— Several of our staff and members of the organization are, and LDF has been representing us very ably there, and we will challenge the uh, the map that was passed by our state today.
0: Uh, Evan Milligan, uh, keep up the fight. Thank you. Really appreciate you
5: being
6: here. Thank you so much. Well, good to be with your team.
0: Thank you. Thank you. Uh, Let me turn to Mark Elias. Um, This is what Governor Kay Ivey said uh, about the redistricting map. Um, And she she issued this statement following the U.S. Supreme Court order. I called the Alabama legislature into a special session to readdress our congressional map. The legislature knows our state, our people and our districts better than the federal courts or activist groups. And I am pleased that they answered the call, remained focused and produced new districts ahead of the court deadline. Um, hmm. Let's put up the map. It doesn't seem like it does, like it follows the law as she's claiming it did. Chief Justice John Roberts was very clear in his majority opinion on Allen versus Milligan, Milligan versus Allen. Under the court's precedence, a district is not equally open when minority voters face, unlike their majority peers, block voting along racial lines arising against the backdrop of substantial racial discrimination within the state that renders a minority vote unequal to a vote by a non-minority member. And he's not even for voting rights. That's how he ruled. What do you make of this defiance, this massive resistance in Alabama?
4: Look, this isn't that complicated. They they're just breaking the law. Like you can you can we can have a whole lot of like conversations about what this politician said or that politician. The fact is, Alabama broke the law when they drafted the map to begin with. They got sued. They they protested, they thought they were going to win because they had a three-judge panel with two Trump appointees. They lost. They thought they'd go to the US Supreme Court and win. They didn't. They lost. And now when faced with having to comply with the law, which is by the way not that complicated, right? Like A majority minority means 50%. It can't be 38% and be more than 50%. They just decided they're not going to follow the law. So what's going to happen now is there's not going to have to be a new lawsuit. There, what's going to happen now is that the federal district court panel is just going to draw their own new map because they're going to look at this and they're going to say, 38% is not greater than 50%. Okay, they didn't do what they were told to. We'll draw a map.
0: Well, let let me ask you this, because it's very blatantly political. I mean, you have Kevin McCarthy calling. You have Tommy Tuberville, the senator from Alabama, calling because they're concerned about losing the House. This is now federal, you know, this is an an interesting kind of intervention for uh, self-gain. Your thoughts?
4: Look, I mean, there was an era when this would have been something that would have been out of bounds. You know, it would have been the subject of a scandal in Washington, D.C. if you had a House majority leader or House speaker in this case, calling a state legislature, telling them to violate a federal court <laughs> order. Right. So let's just think like that. There was an era not that long ago that would have been in and of itself a scandal. But Republicans yeah. have only one plan for 2024. They are going to make it harder to vote and easier to cheat. So the voter suppression we see is about making it harder to vote. The rigging the maps The election subversion is about cheating. And it is a it is a national disgrace that an entire political party now doesn't just whisper that quietly. They shout it out loud.
0: It is about fear of the other voters. Uh, the average, um, the sort of median age of uh, white Americans is 48. The median age of African-Americans is 27. For other uh, non-white groups, it's even younger. They're afraid of young people because young people are not going to vote for their tax cuts. Mark Elias, thank you very much. Oh, putting fingers. Meanwhile, Ron DeSantis decides to reboot his struggling campaign by, hold on, suing Bud Light? What in the snow white high boots? Ron, you're doing it wrong. We'll be right back.
2: Some of your supporters are disappointed that your campaign has yet to catch fire. Republican voters see you as less and less electable. Uh, What do you say to that analysis? I don't think it's true. I mean, the the proof is in the pudding. A lot of people view me as a threat. I think the left views me as a threat. Whatever. It's fine. I'm definitely doing better than everybody else. Okay.
0: I'm sorry. I'm sorry. Did Ron DeSantis really just say the word pudding? Does anyone on his campaign actually like him? Because he is not getting good advice, y'all. Lord have have my mercy. Revolting eating habits aside, that was a laughable claim from Governor Destroy Florida, that he is doing better than everybody else. I mean, he completely ignores the fact that his anti-woke robot act is actually really off-putting, even to Republicans. He is stuck in second place in the polls, drifting further and further behind Trump over time. And his campaign is not in good shape. NBC News is now reporting that morale is downright low, according to a campaign source who said, quote, the entire campaign is on the brink. The campaign is apparently planning a reboot, supposedly with fewer big speeches and more of a national focus. But Ron doesn't seem to have gotten the memo, announcing on Fox that he is launching an inquiry into Bud Light's parent company to punish them for the wokeness violation of partnering with an influencer who had the nerve to be trans, which Ronnie Nolakey,
2: We're going to be launching an inquiry uh, about Bud Light and InBev, and it could be something that leads to a derivative lawsuit uh, filed on behalf of the shareholders of the Florida uh, Pension Fund, because at the end of the day, there's got to be penalties for when you put business aside to focus on your social agenda at the expense of hardworking people.
0: Oh, wow, wow, wow. So people don't like it when someone's social agenda is pushed on them? Hmm. Weird. DeSantis is claiming that Florida pension holders suffered when conservatives lost their minds and boycotted Bud Light. It's not the first stunt that he's pulled with the pension. He already made a big deal over prohibiting state investments in companies that pursue diversity or inclusion or who demonstrate a concern for the planet not burning up. But if he's actually concerned about the pension, he might want to address the fact that its finances are not in good shape reportedly losing $200 million due to investments in, wait for it, Russia, which they held on to after sanctions were imposed due to Russia's invasion of Ukraine and invasion DeSantis, as your anti-woke president, wouldn't be bothered to oppose. Joining me now is David Jolly, former congressman from Florida and an MSNBC political analyst, and Christina Greer, professor of political science at Fordham University and host of the Greer podcast, The Blackest Questions. It falls to you, David Jolly, to explain how this reboot is going.
7: Look, Ron DeSantis is frustrated that America tonight doesn't want to be Florida and America doesn't want Florida's (laughs) governor. And so he's trying to reinvent himself. The problem, Joy, as you know well, is who Ron DeSantis would have to become to become a successful presidential candidate he's simply incapable of. He'd have to be a Republican who's strong on national security, standing up against Putin, a Republican who is shepherding a resilient economy with ladders of opportunity for all people, and a Republican that thinks politicians should stay out of your curriculum, out of your bedroom, and out of your family's decisions. None of that is who Ron DeSantis can be. He's cast himself as a Pat Robertson presidential candidate from the 80s. America sees him that way. He will. The only thing he has going for him is time. He does have six months to try to rebrand, but right now the rebrand is as bad as the launch.
0: Yeah, but, you know, and, Christina, typically, if you're a governor is running for president, they're doing it on the basis of their stewardship of their state. His state is losing construction workers. Uh, field hands on farms are fleeing the state because of the immigration law. There's malaria afoot. They've got malaria now rampant in the state and no public health director to stop it. And now they just decided that students need to learn that slavery. Slavery was great. Great job training for the blacks. Your thoughts. Right. Well, Joy, you know, Joy, governors usually try and tout executive
8: experience saying, you know, I led the state and we have all these record accomplishments because voters go to the polls based on economics and pocketbook issues. Ron DeSantis doesn't have that record. He can't say that about the state of Florida. He's having a very difficult case making that to the rest of the Republican Party. And I would add one more element to David's layout, which is also Republicans like a candidate with a little bit of personality. And we've seen time and time <laughs> again that Ron DeSantis is smug. Arrogant and seems very disinterested in having to go through the business of campaigning, and there are a lot of people in his party who just they want to see him, you know, in that Donald Trump, George Bush esque uh, mode of having fun with them, sort of being their friend.
0: even yeah, well, the he also haunted. he's put. He also eats pudding with his fingers, which is disgusting. Uh, let's uh, go to Robert F. Kennedy Jr., the other would-be president. Here he is. Uh, well, actually, let's, let's play his, uh, John F. Kennedy's grandson, uh, Jack Schlossberg, speaking about RFK Jr.
2: He's trading in on Camelot, celebrity, conspiracy theories, and conflict for personal gain and fame. I've listened to him. I know him. I have no idea why anyone thinks he should be president. What I do know is, his candidacy is an embarrassment.
0: Here's why they might say, why this young man might be saying that. Here's Robert F. Kennedy Jr. in his own words, um, captured by the New York Post.
4: COVID-19, there's an argument that it is ethnically targeted. COVID-19 attacks certain races um, disproportionately. COVID-19 is targeted to attack uh, Caucasians and uh, and uh, and uh, black people. The people who are most immune are Ashkenazi Jews and uh, and Chinese. <laughs> and but no,
0: we don't know whether it was deliberately targeted that or not. David, uh, he then denied he said that, but it's you saw it's on tape. It's on tape.
7: Boy, he simply sounds like a Republican, which I think is the amazing kind of political analysis of this. We can qualitatively break down his comments and realize how absurd they are. But I I honestly believe with conviction, if RFK Jr. was running in the Republican primary, he may be leading Ron DeSantis. It is exactly the type of Republican disruptor that that party embraces. He speaks their language. I have no idea why he's running as a Democrat.
0: You know what, Christina? David, I, I agree with him. I actually think that he might be the one person that could beat Donald Trump in a primary, in a Republican primary. Right. Well, I mean, Joy, I think, you know, to add to David's point,
8: though, he sounds like a Republican because he sounds like someone who spends a lot of time doing deep research on the Internet. And that's where the Republican (laughs) Party is right now, just filled with conspiracy theories. And, you know, really insulting uh, theories about not just covid, but about racial science and who deserves uh, to be in this country and who is deserving. And so sadly, you know, there are quite a few Americans who are um, attracted to not just the Kennedy name, but some of these conspiracy theories that are unfortunately becoming way more mainstream uh, just because they are repeated consistently uh, and told by, you know, sort of wealthy people and people that we see on the news on a daily basis.
0: Is that what it will take David to, to to rescue your former party? Does somebody with like a name need to come forward, you know, but who's actually coherent and like lucid? <laughs> but then is, what will it take to, to to reverse it or or is it just too late? Is the party just dead?
7: I don't know that it can be reversed. I mean, what what Donald Trump ushered in and Ron DeSantis Christine's exactly right kind of this post-truth, post-fact, post-ideology party. They embrace the whack jobs and the crazies, and the <laughs> ones who can catch fire are the ones that win. Look, the reason Ron DeSantis has to win right now, and he likely won't, is because this is probably Kerry Lake's party four years from now. This Republican Party is moving downhill at a fast clip.
0: Yeah, uh, we're out of time. I did want to just say rest in peace to the great Tony Bennett. He was not only a legend, but also a civil rights legend as well. So we didn't get a chance to talk about him, but we want to mention that he did pass. There's some VO of him. So rest in peace, Tony Bennett. Dave and Christine are sticking around to help me kick off the weekend by playing a little Who on the Week. That is next. Well, folks, we made it to the end of another week, which means it is time to play our favorite game. Ah, yes, here's the music. Who won the week? Back with me, are former Congressman David Jolly and Christina Greer. Christina Greer, ladies first, who won the week? Uh, my favorite Bayou Barbie from
8: the best city in the world, Baltimore. I'm talking about Angel Reese, who got her high school basketball court uh, dedicated to her. She also got the keys to the city, and she managed to do a fundraiser for women's basketball Uh, to go to her former alma mater.
0: I love her. She is adorable and brilliant uh, as a track star. Love that. Okay, that's a good choice. All right, Uh, David Jolly, it falls to you to tell us who in your mind won the week.
7: Joy, I am so excited about this week's winner of the week because it is you and the Readout team celebrating your third <laughs> anniversary of the readout. Listen, you made history when you launched in the seven o'clock hour. You have loyal MSNBC viewers who trust you and your team every night to deliver the truth. And even over at Fox News, they can't quit you as you drop truth bombs <laughs> on them and their keyboard warriors go crazy every night. The world is watching Joy Reid and the readout team three years after your launch. Congratulations.
0: Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. I, I appreciate that. You are a good friend and a good fan, like member of our family. We have a whole family on the show and you are a big part of it. Both of you are part of our family. So thank you very much. And this team is awesome. So big ups to the readout team. Uh, it is the best team in the whole world. So I love them very much. Thank you. All right. So my who won the week, though, uh, is, as you can see, I'm wearing a little bit of the uh, sort of Clue for mine, it is Delta Sigma Theta Sorority Incorporated. Uh, My wonderful, beautiful sorority, which they're all in Indianapolis right now. I'm not there. They are celebrating the 56th National Convention. Uh, It was wonderful. Kamala Harris gave a rip-roaring speech. She is from AKA, from Alpha Kappa Alpha Sorority Incorporated, but she came and visited to be part of the Divine Nine Black Girl Magic. And she, that's how I knew she was hopping mad about that Florida curriculum because she said, all the words about it. Uh, also, yesterday was honored a clerk, Cheryl Johnson, who got a standing ovation. If you guys remember during Kevin McCarthy's speaker vote, the amazing clerk, Cheryl Johnson was honored. Um, they inducted six new honorary members, including somebody who will be familiar to people who watch this uh, network. But also the big star was Justice Katanji Brown. Jackson, who was inducted as an honorary member of the Delta Sigma Theta sorority Incorporated. Uh, That was the big news uh, that broke that uh, she is now uh, our sweet, sweet soror. And it is so brilliant. And we were so excited about it. David Jolly, Christina Greer. Thank you very much. Deltas, we won the week. That is tonight's readout.